Udemy.io is a platform for developer documentation. Greg Koberger is the CEO of Readme.io. Greg, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much. What is Readme.io? Um, so like you said, uh, if I were to give like a 10 second pitch, uh, we do beautiful documentation made simple. Um, but more than that though, uh, we kind of see documentation as the center, the, the UI or the front end for any sort of developer experience. Meaning that if you have any sort of API or code library or anything like that, um, as much time as you put into the API or code library, uh, the way that users are going to interact with your um, code library, API, whatever, is going to be through documentation. Um, so we want to first, uh, the first step is to kind of just do, make it really easy to publish documentation. Um, so it's kind of be a really nice experience for writing paragraphs of text that kind of documents your stuff. Um, and then the next step is going to be um, just building a nice UI on top of it that makes things much, much more intuitive. Um, so rather than having like a paragraph, for example, that says, okay, go to dashboard.whatever.com and sign for your developer key. Like it'd be really nice if just like in line, there's a link that said, click this to get your developer key, or you just clicked it, or it just worked. Um, and we kind of see documentation as like our umbrella um, into kind of just uh, building like kind of magical, we call them like magical developer experiences for users. So how does this compare to the internal wiki software that we're familiar with? Sure. Uh, it's definitely very similar. Um, so there's a lot of things out there that do knowledge-based type things. Um, and if we were to kind of go up against them, we'd be a, you know, average competitor to any of the knowledge bases out there. Um, where Readme really kind of shines and is really like starts getting really exciting um, is uh, when you uh, start doing things like updating meta or uploading metadata for your API. Uh, so I don't know if you guys are familiar with something like Swagger or Blueprint or any of these, but um, they're kind of like a way to describe your API um, using metadata. So we have ways for you to kind of sync um, Swagger and a few other ones right into README. Um, maybe connect with GitHub, maybe you give a URL, whatever it happens to be, but keep things up to date. Um, and then we can do things like uh, parsing this file and uh, you know, if you just write paragraphs of text like a knowledge base, that's all you can really do. Um, there's not much, you can, you can make it look nice, you can uh, you know, make links work, things like that, but that's about it. Whereas um, when we start kind of moving more into metadata, um, and we do both paragraphs of text and metadata, but when we do more metadata stuff, we can start doing things like generating code samples or generating SDKs, um, or, you know, we know about the API, so you can actually play around with the API or code library right in the documentation and see what, you know, you get back and kind of uh, get information if things don't work, why it doesn't work, see errors, things like that. Um, so kind of the, the big difference, and there's a lot of differences, but um, the thing that I'm most excited about is kind of uh, English is the good language, I speak it, but uh, it's not great for kind of like, um, you know, transferring knowledge about an API. APIs are very logical. You know, they're written in a programming language that's very logical. Uh, the programming language that's used to consume the API, also very logical. Um, yet somehow for documentation, we tend to kind of, um, you know, serialize that knowledge as English, which is very ambiguous and very um, prone to misinterpretation, things like that. Um, so, so I think what you're what mm -hmm. you're encapsulating is that uh, good code should be self-documenting, but you don't necessarily have to have that self-documentation within your code base. You can externalize it in a place like README. Yes, um, and APIs tend to be very external-facing. Um, so usually the people that are consuming it um, aren't necessarily the ones that are creating it. Um, as opposed to something like GitHub where, you know, everyone using a GitHub project is both the user and the creator for the most part. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of different like, uh, you know, things we could talk about as far as that goes. Um, but one of the big things that we're trying to do is get away from these paragraphs of text and let computers, uh, and things like auto-generated docs have a very bad negative connotation because uh, in the past, when people say, you know, our docs are auto-generated, that really just means, like, I didn't care enough to do a good job, so I just, like, you know, used Doxygen and generated docs and, like, you know, uploaded the static files. Um, so that's very... Yeah, and I find that those types of practices mm -hmm. also lead to, like, you know, you write a two-string method and you have to document the two-string method, and it's like, it's, it's like, why would you write documentation for a two-string method? Yes, it's, uh, you're either over-documenting or under-documenting, or documenting the wrong thing at the very least. So what makes good documentation? Is this something that we can rigidly codify? Yeah, so there's a few ways to answer that. Uh, I think that um, as far as like what makes good documentation, if you were to 
write it your own um, way on like WordPress or, you know, Jekyll or something like that. Uh, I think the biggest thing that people miss is splitting it up into three or four different sections. Um, everyone just kind of thinks is most companies do just one type, maybe two. Um, but there's a few different types of documentation. So the first is topical guides, which is uh, more high level why you'd want to do things uh, on a higher level, like philosophically, like how the project works, how things work. Um, uh, there's some kind of just like why you'd want to use it, things like that. Then there's uh, tutorials, which are, you know, more example based, more, you know, you step through it and you see, uh, you know, step one, do this, step two, do this. Um, then there's reference guides, which are kind of the, um, you know, here's the parameters, here's the, uh, the examples, here's all this stuff. Um, and there's a little overlap between all three of them, but uh, I think it's really important to kind of have all three of those um, separate sections. And on top of that, I think the, the fourth, which isn't really documentation, but is so important, is uh, a support section. Because documentation should be relatively like, cohesive. It should be a story. Um, it doesn't have to read like a story, but like it should be, you don't want to just throw every data point, every information you have into the documentation because there's edge cases that you, know, you don't want to bore people with. Um, whereas like support with a good search is amazing because it's kind of a wild west for, for documentation. You can just, you know, people can ask questions, you can ask questions, um, and like edge cases can be documented and things like that, which is why Stack Overflow is, you know, so huge. Um, people tend to use Stack Overflow instead of a project's documentation. Um, so I think those four things, topical guides, tutorials, um, reference guides, and like a support section are like the four things you really need for good documentation. And so you touched on this a bit, but how has the growth of externally facing APIs impacted the way that developers view documentation and the requirements for documentation? Uh, yeah, so I think that, uh, well, two things. First, uh, you said the two-string thing. Like, normally, if it's just on GitHub, you can go and look exactly how the two-string two, yeah, two method is working and uh, kind of figure it out that way. Whereas with APIs, you can't look at the code, so it's a little tougher. Mm. Uh, I, think that, I think that the biggest thing that ever happened for you know, README's existence was Stripe. Um, in the sense that Stripe kind of did a really good job in their docs, and uh, it's, it's kind of like changed the way people think about documentation. Before, people thought of it as an afterthought. Now people realize that, you know, the reason why Stripe, Stripe's a good product that has a good API that's well thought through, but the reason that they won over Braintree and things like that was because their docs were just really great. Um, same with Twilio. Twilio has a lot of competition, but the reason people love Twilio is because their documentation is really, really great. Um, and I think that people are kind of realizing that uh, the API needs to be good, but more importantly, uh, you know, the, the interface and the UI that people use for, for documenting stuff is, um, is the documentation. What do you know about the internal cultures of Stripe and Twilio that has driven them to think of documentation as a first-order object or first-order, you know, something to focus on? Um, good question. Uh, it would be unfair for me to, like, really speculate. I Like, I know people at both companies, um, so I'll try my best to answer. But uh, anyone who actually works at Stripe or works at, uh, works at Twilio, feel free to tell me I'm uh, way off base. Um, I think for Twilio, the big thing was not documentation. It was more uh, developer experience was what they cared about. They are just very developer-first. Um, they basically created the, the, the whole concept of like a developer evangelist. Um, and they put so much money into their product, but more so into just kind of like the developer experience. And I think that, I don't think they ever like really, uh, uh, and clearly they thought a lot of docs, but like it wasn't that they thought, you know, we're going to do a really good job on documentation. Rather, they thought we're going to build a really nice developer experience. Um, and documentation happened to be a big part of that. Um, as far as Stripe goes, uh, I don't actually know. I think that it's definitely a huge part of their culture. Um, they have very, um, they make sure that everyone, like anyone who writes an API endpoint or whatever, writes their own docs. So that's very, you know, um, up to date and correct. Um, so the culture around that. Maybe uh, I'm misremembering something, but like, I think I heard a podcast about Stripe having some insane amount of transparency. Like they don't have like private email or something oh, yeah. like everyone every, every email. email. Yep. Have you heard that? Yeah. Everyone gets uh, every email. Um, most people obviously archive a lot of it, but uh, every email sent from anyone in the company to anyone in the company is uh, viewable, uh, which is 
kind of crazy. Um, I don't know if I'd like that, but uh, just because it's a lot of uh, a lot of like signal um, or a lot of noise. But um, yeah, I think Stripe just. I think Stripe's. I think both companies they didn't really sit down and think we're going to make the best stocks possible. I think they thought we're going to make the best uh, developer experience possible. Um, so I wouldn't say that they're documentation heavy. I think that both companies just tend to be very like developer. Uh, experience focused and that just translated into really good documentation okay so i mean this is totally a tangent but like what do you think are the upsides and downsides of having completely open email good question i think it keeps you honest uh i think that i mean to take it away from email like i think that i'd be a much better person if i knew that every time i like you know talked about someone if i knew that they would hear it i think i just i'd naturally become kind of like a better person and i feel like if you're Forced, if you know that someone can read your email um, within the confines of the company, I feel like that little like part of your brain that's like, you know, we could do something that's kind of shady, like it goes away pretty quickly. Um, so I think I, I haven't thought too much about it. And like, you know, my company doesn't do that. Um, but I think kind of that transparency kind of like is good because it it forces you to always do the right thing um, would be kind of my my take on it. Do you think the NSA would say the same thing? <laughs> so that's different. Uh, I don't like, I think that um, in uh, internally, um, having like in the company, having all your emails public is uh, one thing. I think that the NSA is a different thing. And it's very subtle, but I think that, um, I think people s still should have privacy, of course. Um, but, you know, privacy does not extend to uh, being a company. But that is a good point. Like, I think that, even though I'm definitely not advocating for like the NSA, um, I think that if I knew that it was likely that like all my text messages would be leaked, I'd probably be a much, <laughs> a much better, nicer person. Um, so maybe yeah, the NSA should like uh, throw up a website where like anybody can use their tools, so like anybody can access all of that data feed. Um, anyway, that's getting it is. I mean, it is again. I am so against like the NSA. <laughs> it is kind of fascinating how the how they it could if we know that you know nothing we ever say or do is private like we could either it could go one of two ways we could all become better people or maybe we could all just realize that we're all horrible people and uh just kind of embrace it a little bit more um yeah see i and, and in either case i don't see the whole chilling effect like you hear these 1984 uh phobic people talk about how it's you know the nsa causes a chilling effect causes people to act more conservatively i don't completely agree with that yeah, so I think, well, I think there's a big distinction, which is uh, that, let's look at Stripe compared to the NSA. In Stripe, I can read, if I were to Stripe, I could read the CEO's emails, and he could read mine, and all that. Whereas the NSA is very top-down. Like, I would not, like, could you imagine working at a company, what if you found out that Stripe, uh, you know, the CEO's, the CEO and, like, the board could read everyone's email in the company? That would seem like a huge overreach. Right, that the one-way, the one-way yeah, stuff. it's top-down, and that seems very bad. Like, if, if you told me that I was going to work at a company and the CEO could read my emails, I would be like, oh, hell no. Um, I think it's more of, like, kind of the, um, the like, I don't use the word socialistic, but, like, kind of, like, the, like, everyone's equal kind of thing that I actually really like. The difference is that top-down is very uh, Orwellian, whereas, like, if everyone could read everyone's emails, it would be a little more... Um, a little more fair. And I would actually be more interested in the other way around where, you know, we can read the CEO's emails or we can read the president's emails as opposed to uh, him or her being able to read ours. Mm, interesting. Um, that might be a problem if, well, I don't know, insert Hillary Clinton joke. Um, yeah. uh, we might actually be able to read her emails, so this could work out really well. <laughs> right. um, but like, I just think that, I think that a lot of people are prone to doing things that if they knew that everyone would it, it would come to light, I feel like they would be a little more embarrassed by doing it, and that seems like a good thing. Um, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. We'll see. That being said, the, there's also the argument of like you know national security. Like you don't really want everyone knowing, you know, Obama's playbook or whomever the next president is play, like their playbook. So there, it's it's interesting. Privacy is uh, a interesting topic. Definitely. So let's get back to talking about README. Um, can you describe the technology stack that README is built on? Yes. Um, so we are a Node app um, with Angular on the front end and uh, Mongo for the database. Um, so it's a pretty basic mean stack. Um, so mean is uh, Mongo for the M, Express for the framework, uh, 
A is Angular and then N is Node. Um, it was my actually my first time using uh, Node for anything real, um, and my first time using Mongo at all when I started README. Um, mm -hmm. I was a Python person before this, uh, but I always really liked. Um, I always felt much more comfortable, even though I started as a backend programmer. Um, I always kind of just like felt more at home with uh, like JavaScript um, for whatever reason. It just kind of like felt right to me. And that's not that I'm definitely not saying it's the best language, but um, like a lot of my friends would always say, like, oh, I just feel like so at home in Ruby, or like you know, sounds my language. And I wrote all these languages, but I never felt at home. Um, and I'm not sure what it is about like why some people like some languages and others don't. Um, well, the problem is me, that those those seems... developers mm -hmm. those developers who are writing Ruby or Python they would also have to write JavaScript. Oh, precisely. Yeah, you're writing JavaScript whether you like it or not. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Um, but like for me, just uh, JavaScript kind of been like the the framework that I just feel feel right um, using, or the language that I feel kind of right um, working with. Um, so it's been great so far. I absolutely love it. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm in the same boat. When when you built README, was Meteor around? Uh, yes, it was, and I used Meteor prior to that. Okay, why did why didn't you build uh, an an architecture that used Meteor? Uh, good question. Um, I just felt like too new. Uh, uh too new, definitely. Uh, I'd used it, and I had run into a lot of problems, which was just the whole like. You run into a problem, you Google it, and no one else has had that problem. Um, <laughs> and, like, that just slows down development. But I also just didn't really – it just never felt to me like README needed to be completely real-time. Um, yeah. And if I were to build a social network, I'd probably want to use Meteor. Um, or something like uh, – I just feel like for something like documentation, like, if things were flying around the screen and changing and moving, <laughs> um, it just – it. Seems like it would be a huge pain, and like there wasn't any like huge benefits that I could come up with um, that would require kind of like that real time nature. Um, and I'm sure that I could like you know I'm sure things like it would be really nice if like comments popped in as soon as they were they were posted. But it's not a very real time platform. It's not a um, like if it was a chat app or if it was a uh, even like Facebook. If I were to build Facebook, like it would be really cool if like as soon as someone commented something like it popped up because things happen to be very you know things happen very real-time-esque on Facebook, even though it's not a chat app. Um, it's very, um, you know, up to the minute. Whereas with documentation, doc good documentation, like, could just not be touched for six months and still be just as good. And uh, very rarely are you on the site and, you know, something happens in the 30 seconds you're, you're reading the documentation. So, um, How enjoyable yeah. is it to develop on a more decoupled mean stack compared to Meteor? Yeah, so that's like I actually uh, like it because it it just it's easier to think about. I think, um, and if I thought that you know Meteor was the right way to go, I would do something that was harder. Um, so I'm not afraid of like you know using hard technology or whatever. But it just makes it very simple to think about. It makes it easier to test. I always found those very hard to keep up to date with, uh, or like keep wrap my head around, you know, the implications of everything I did. Um, you know, I clicked this, but, like, this moved something someplace else, things like that. Uh, I think that real-time uh, is fascinating. I think that whether it's media or not, I think that we definitely see technology moving towards kind of like a one, like, one code base for the front end, for the back end, for everything. Um, and obviously, media has the best chance right now because it's got to be JavaScript for the foreseeable future. Um, uh yeah, it just, it just seemed very, like, hard to kind of wrap my head around um, all the real-time stuff. Like, I've done real-time stuff, and, like, just keeping track of, like, you know, uh, broadcasting and watching on channel. Like, it just, it, it, it tends to be very, uh, you have to sit back and kind of, like, really think it through sometimes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So why did you choose Angular? Did you have React as an option around that time also? Uh Yes, but it wasn't where it was. When I picked Angular, uh, Angular was the probably the best um, framework. So I, um, so when I started, uh, React was definitely a thing, um, but it wasn't anywhere near as big as it is now. Um, and I totally could have gone with Angular with React at the time, but like Angular seemed like the right choice because um, it just it was just it was a big framework at the time and. I always, my mindset for like starting a company, for starting a side project and starting a company are very different. For starting a side project, I want to use like fun new technology, um, like Meteor. 
Uh, for starting a company, I always err on the side of what's going to have the least amount of roadblocks. And by roadblocks, I usually kind of mean, you know, unanswerable questions or like my problem with Meteor was uh, when I used it, there's like something very specific I needed and like it was on their roadmap and it might have been, you know, they're going to do it in the next few months, but like that's, that kills you. Um, so obviously Angular, Node, Express, like all these, like they're pretty new fun technologies, but they seem to be right at that like level where they're also very stable and there's a lot of information online. There's a lot of packages online for everything you need to do. Um, that being said, if I were to start today, um, I would almost definitely use React um, for two reasons. One, because the whole Angular 1 versus Angular 2 thing is unfortunately going to kill Angular. Um, and that's sad because I actually really, really like Angular. Um, it's it's just, it's a little clunky and there's issues with it, but uh, it's, I love it. Um, so, but, and then two is React just, you know, being the more, exci- it's the more exciting, cool, it's stable now. It's, um, what do you has mean it's going to kill Angular? Uh, so I think that the problem is, so I think that Angular is in a really rough position. It which is. Is that uh, they have two options. Option one is just keep going with the way they're going. Uh, and, you know, just Angular 2 could have been a, you know, could have sat on, like, could have just been an improvement on Angular 1 and kept going down that route. Um, and the problem with that is, you know, React is destroying it. React is the better framework. Um, whether or not it actually is, like, that's very subjective. But oh, I don't think it's very subjective at this point. Like, Angular is oh, yeah. copying React. Oh, I agree. Um, <laughs> so, like, I think it's safe to say, I don't think you'd have anyone who really fought back. Like, there's things I love about Angular, but, like, I think it's very fair to say that, you know, React is the better framework. Um, and uh, I think that the problem with two Angular 2 is that why would you start an Angular 1 project now for the next year? Um, and when Angular 2 does come out, it's it seems like it's going to be a copy of React, and why would you use a copy of React when you can use React? Um, and React just has the better uh, the better support as well, in the sense that you know React is being used by Facebook, and it's actually being used by Facebook. Like you go to Facebook.com, and that's React, which means that they care about it. Whereas no one at Google is using Angular. Uh, I'm sure there's someone at Google using it, but like there's no reason to believe that Angular is going to have any sort of support from Google, uh, especially as it becomes less and less cool. Um, and yeah, it just seems like I just don't see, as much as I love Angular and like I'm rooting for it, I just don't see a path where Angular makes through this uh, Angular 2 transition without kind of uh, hemorrhaging all its users. It's it's so insane because a year ago, everybody was so hot on Angular and now mm-hmm. it's just like everybody's so hot on React and <laughs> this stuff moves so fast. I know. That's that's the worst thing about front-end JavaScript is it does seem like every six months there's something new. And that's so cool because, like, it's moving so quickly. And, like, having been a web developer for a decade where the front-end was just kind of, like, a barren wasteland of, like – and jQuery was great, but, like, jQuery was it for, like, a decade. Um, And, like, just the rapid, like – it's so cool to see people actually caring about the front-end and building good tools for it. But it also is exhausting because, like – I, it's, uh, I'm, are we turn a year old, uh, this week and like already our tech stack is like completely out of date. Like that just seems <laughs> insane to me. Like I, I always feel bad when I'm interviewing like really good JavaScript people who, you know, aren't beholden to having to maintain a code base for a year. And like, they're all like, yeah, reacts great. And I'm like, I agree. But like, <laughs> do you want to be the guy who rewrites our entire code base to react because, um, you know, it's, it's cool or whatever. So but at least you aren't, like, yet another legacy Rails stack. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which is really weird because Rails was really cool three years ago. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, like, it is – one thing that really scares me, actually, and I, I joke about this, but I'm actually, like, actually scared about it, is that I really like the mean stack. Or maybe it's, you know – do people say Reen? Uh, or uh, what is it? It would be M-E-Mirm? I don't know. Uh, like, you know – Angular or not Angular, uh, React and uh, Express, um, like I whatever it happens to be. But mean? Uh, well, or, I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry, React, uh, React. Oh, and okay, Mern. Or yeah, whatever you Mern. Yeah. yeah, whatever you call it. Um, like I, I'm never gonna say that again. It's so bad. <laughs> but um, like 
whatever it happens to be, but like, like that kind of esque stack, like the node in the back end, JavaScript in the front end, some sort of framework. Like the problem is I like it so much that I'm really worried that like I'm gonna stop learning new languages. Like I'm really worried that like, you know those like, you know, there's like that that older programmer who's been around for like thirty years and he's like, Yeah, I still use, you know, whatever was cool fifteen years ago. Spring. Um and I always like, yeah, and I always like look at them and I'm like, you know, like you should keep up to date, you should keep going. But like because I kept learning new languages, but I've gotten to the point now where I just really like this so much and it's such a natural fit that I'm really worried that I'll have a hard time, you know, moving on to a new language. Like maybe well, Go is I the don't, next I don't language. Know. Well, it could be, but like I think that, that these things usually evolve where it's like you've got somebody that's on the cutting edge and then yep. they still see a pain point and then they fix the pain point and that's the update. Yeah, um, I mean, like, Rails isn't dead either. Like, they're still yeah, coming out exactly. with, like, new Rails frameworks, like Java. Well, and, yeah, and actually, there. to your point, there's a, so many people that are still on the rail. They just love Rails and mm -hmm. probably will never get off of it. Yeah, and that's what I'm kind of afraid of is, like, you know, in <laughs> 10 years, Rails and Node are both going to be uh, – I, I, it would be foolish to say that, you know what, Rails or Node or Go is going to be the language that's going to get us to the next, you know, 50 years. Yeah. Uh, like there's never been a language that's been cool for more than like, let's say 10 years. And even that's really, really pushing it. Um, yeah. see, and, you really yeah. go, go is the next like web platform. Framework I don't know. Thing? Uh, so the reason why I think that is because the reason why I say go is because, uh, of all the sure candidates, it, well, yeah. And I mean, all the candidates, I can't really think of like one that I would, um, like, I can't think of a language that. And this is going to change. There will be new languages coming out all the time. But, like, I can't think of a language that, like, has more of, like, a um, people going to it. And, like, TJ Holloway, Chuck, if you're familiar with him, he wrote everything in Node. Like, every single Node package was written by yeah. this one guy. And, you know, he switched to Node, a bunch of other – or he switched to Go. A bunch of other, like, people doing Node kind of switched to Go. Uh, um, and I, Yeah, and I, I get that because it, for someone like him who comes in and, like, builds, you know – 200 packages that are used by everyone, it's got to be pretty boring to just like sit around and keep using the same language you've been using for like, you know, a while. And so that guy's a real person, by the way. I, there's, I've heard rumors that he's not. Um, he is, <laughs> I, I hear he's a cabal. Yeah, it's just insane. Like, if you look at his commits, they're like almost 24 hours. Like, it's absolutely <laughs> insane. Um, I was talking to uh, someone who used to work at LearnBoost with them, which is the company that you never heard of the product, but like they built like, express uh mongoose uh like they built like jade style like every package you use in node and i'm like come on is, is he really a real person um and he's like yeah he just like he would go home at night and just code like all night and then he would get up next morning and just keep coding and uh like yeah he's it's like for a while a lot of people thought that he was just um just thought that he was like a name that a group of programmers used uh, and like if you look, it's really funny online. Like, there's a lot of people who like chart the times he programmed and use that as proof of, as like, no, it's clearly people on different continents working together. Um, and other people like analyze his code and they're like, no, look, like sometimes he does, uh, he does like imports this way. Sometimes he does imports, you know, this way. And like trying to like prove that this guy is not a real person and like is a collective of people. But uh, yeah, no, he's a, he's a real person. Um, so yeah, actually, what do, you, like, what do you think? What do you think the next like language is going to be? Oh man, JavaScript <laughs> forever. <laughs> I mean, the way I'm I'm a pragmatist, right? So I'm like, why do we need these different languages? Uh, and uh, you know, when, when we can just if we can just say like, hey, like you, you know, if you guys can go and make ASM.js yep. and make you know make this all fast, like let's just do JavaScript for the rest of our lives and build higher level abstractions than these stupid kludgy languages. Yep. Oh, I mean, I would Who, love if you were right, but uh, that, that logic would also kind of, we'd still be using Fortran right now if, that, if yeah. like, everyone had that logic. So. Oh yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. Um, uh, so yeah, it's tough. I mean, like I, I think JavaScript's really fascinating because I don't think a language has changed and progressed as much as JavaScript has. And I, I'm very, my view is very narrow, but like Rails hasn't really changed, like Ruby, for example, like, there's been Rails and like there's been Sinatra and stuff like that, but like, you know, Rails one when people started using it, like obviously Rails four now is much better, but it's it's not that different. Whereas like with JavaScript, there's Node, there's front end, there's Angular, there's React, there's you know so many different ASM, like there's so many flavors of it that it almost feels more. I think you're kind of right that it almost feels 
less like a language and more it's like a, a code. concept. Yeah, exactly. Um, and like it's like the JVM. Yeah, precisely. Um, and it, I think that we have a long time before Node is or before JavaScript is kind of like dead and not the cool language, um, which is good for me because I love JavaScript and it seems like you do too. Um, yeah. But yeah, we'll see. Uh, I I can't imagine though in like ten or fifteen years we're still all using JavaScript. Um, yeah. So, okay, so I, I get the impression that you, the way that you pick technologies if you're building a company is kind of a wisdom of the crowds thing. Maybe that's not entirely true, or just your, if it's if it's proven by the masses, you know, that's the point where you're willing to use it. Yeah, I mean, for two reasons. One, for hiring. Like, could you imagine, like, JavaScript's the most popular language and it's hard to hire. Can you imagine trying to hire for, like, you know, Tasco or something? Like, that would be insane right now. Um, okay, so but with that said, you use DigitalOcean instead of AWS. Is that correct? Uh, we use um, DigitalOcean for some stuff. We use Heroku for some stuff. Um, okay. And at the end of the day, everything's on AWS. But uh, yeah, right. Okay. Oh, okay, wait. Everything is. What do you mean? Uh, so not DigitalOcean. Uh, Heroku. Heroku is built on AWS. Sure. Oh, okay. So you're so, so most so most of your stack is on Heroku. You're saying? Yeah, precisely. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that that makes sense then. Um, so, uh, and uh, another aspect of your stack, uh, well, actually, no, I should ask. Um, I mean, why don't you use DigitalOcean for more? Sure. Um, so originally, uh, when I originally when we originally built the site, uh, about a year and a week ago, it was all on AWS. Um, and at the very last minute, I got cold feet and switched over to Heroku. Um, the reason being that uh, for me, DevOps is the least exciting thing ever. Um, don't like it. Uh, doesn't excite me. Um, I can do it here and there, but like it's just not. Uh, I care more about building a product, and uh, I just kind of was really worried that like if we got a huge influx of traffic, what happens if like I'm just not good at it? What happens if you know I need to set up a load balancer or I need to you know scale something, um, or if the site goes down? Like Heroku makes it really easy for me just to, like restart things. That being said. We're getting to the point where Heroku's not working for us anymore. Um, so we are trying to switch over to AWS. Hmm. What's not working for you? Uh, good question. It's just uh, a few things. Like there's a few constraints around AWS or around Heroku that um, that we're running into that are an issue. Um, a few of the constraints are uh, SSL certs. Um, we do things like developer dot whatever dot com, and uh, issuing SSL certs is expensive and a little tough to do using Heroku um, for people's own domains because um, we want people to be able to upload their own SSL certs. Um, so that's a little tough. Um, it's a little slow um, and that's definitely partially our fault, but uh, there's a lot of like things in Heroku that just kind of like make it harder for us to split up into microservices and stuff. Um, and another big problem that we have is I really want README to be backed by Git. So my point is that you go on the website, you hit edit, you make a change, you hit save, great. I would really like if Git was kind of like the data store um, so that there's a lot of things we can do. We can make sure it's really easy to edit um, a document on README or whatever. But let's say you want to do something like, and we get these requests all the time, you want to uh, do a find and replace um, of the entire thing. Or you want to like, we have versions. You want to merge like version up, updates from version one into version two. Like, this is all UI we can start building out, but our user developers and Git is the best possible API for, you know, text like this. Um, so it makes a lot of sense to kind of, like, start having it be Git-backed. So rather than having to build our, build our own API, we can just let people, like, check it out, make changes, push it back in. Um, and Heroku just, we can't do that in Heroku because there's no sort of, like, you know, file permanency or anything like that. As soon as the server restarts, you lose everything. Um, are the costs of Heroku prohibitive? Uh, the answer is probably yes, but it doesn't matter to us um, because we did Y Combinator and you get uh, money from them. So you get like free credits. Um, so we're paying right now, I think about 400 bucks a month. Uh, or I think yeah. we're paying 400 on hosting and then maybe another five, 600 on like SSL certs because every SSL cert we offer, it costs us 20 bucks a month. Um, just because that's the way that Heroku does it. Um, so that's becoming a little expensive. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's not prohibitive. Um, if you think about it that way, like, to hire a DevOps person, it would be way more than $1,000 a month. Oh, yeah. Um, so even though it is kind of expensive, like, it's a huge, it's a, 
it's a great deal. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm very happy with Roku. Uh, there's a lot of things that I wish that we could do that we can't, but at the end of the day, like if something goes bad, they have someone that's going to fix it within 30 seconds. And like, it's, it is really nice to kind of have like a really quality DevOps on call 24 seven so that I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so we should talk some about design. Readme.io has strikingly polished design. Do you have any design principles that you focused on when you were building Readme? So I uh, am a programmer. Like, that's what I went to school for, a CS major. Um, but design kind of quickly became something I really like doing. And I don't consider myself a real designer because I never took any classes on it, all that. But um, I really like design. And I like developer tools because it's... I can do both design and programming and they can kind of like leverage each other. Um, and as far as like principles, uh, I want Readme to be, to feel light. And I don't think we've done a great job. I want to keep like, you know, pushing this, but I want it to feel very light and fun. Um, not too fun because you don't want it to be like goofy, but documentation is very boring. Uh, no one thinks documentation and thinks, you know, that's great. Um, so I really want it to be, I like, just feel like very lightweight and like, easy to do and uh, not monotonous and not overwhelming and not very like most of the developer tools, especially for documentation are very like kludgy and like feel like they're written in Java and just kind of like have that, that feel. Um, so definitely like if I were to kind of use the, the, like the words that I try to evoke um, and uh, it would be kind of like, and I don't think we've done a great job of this. I think that, or not that we haven't done a good job, but I think we can do a better job, um, but kind of like light and, um, friendly is kind of like the things I'm trying to evoke. Um, and we have like a, I don't know if you've seen our, we have a mascot, um, Albert, who's a little owl. And uh, he's been kind of amazing for just like, you know, personifying Readme and making it very um, anthropomorphic, uh, anthropomorphic and uh, making it feel a little more friendly and, uh, and all that. And I think that's really important because documentation is, can very quickly become very boring. Um, and I think the reason why we were doing so well is that we're a little friendly and a little like, it's not what you'd expect from a, uh, from a developer tool. Um, and I think that like uh, Slack has actually done a really good job of that same thing where Slack is an enterprise tool used by big businesses, but it doesn't feel like an enterprise tool. It feels like a consumer app. Um, so when I build Readme, I kind of try to convince my, or kind of try to remember that, you know, just because developers will put up with anything, at the end of the day, they're still consumers. Like every developer I know, most developers I know, like they still like their iPhone because it's beautiful and they still like beautifully designed apps. Like, yes, they will deal with uh, something that's ugly and, you know, hard to use if it does something well. Um, but at the end of the day, they're always going to want something that's pretty and nice. And that's not completely true. Of course, you know, there's a lot of people who, I don't know about you, but like a lot of people like use Linux and don't care about aesthetics at all. I would much rather, you know, not have to put up a little owl that's hanging around. Um, well, the Linux aesthetics out of the box are pretty good. They actually are. For, for I, I Ubuntu, think, at least. Yeah, I think that actually kind of like proves my point that, you know, even though Linux is very easily could be the ugliest, and it used to be like the ugliest, you know, worst thing, like even Linux has gotten really pretty. Um, and not just pretty, but like just, you know, it feels good. Like it feels nice. And... I think that people are starting to realize that developers are consumers as well. Um, and they want things that look nice and work nice. And just because they have a higher tolerance and a higher ability to figure things out, um, it doesn't mean that they want to. Do you think there's a trade-off between spending time on aesthetic design versus time spent on business functionality? Or are they one and the same? Uh, I can't answer without being slightly hypocritical. I think everyone is because obviously you have to do both. Um, but I've always found the reason why I like design is because, uh, you can, <coughs> sorry, um, like design is, that's a good question. Um, it just, the design just kind of like can kind of lead people certain ways. And by that, I mean, uh, if I had a really, if it was a really ugly app, they just had a, like a salesforce esque thing you're kind of perpetuating the feeling of, you know, well, why not just add one more thing? Like, it's just one more feature. It's just one more thing. Whereas, um, like, even when it's nicely designed and simpler, it kind of evokes that feeling of, like, you know, this is the way you do it. It's very simple um, and all that. And I would love for Readme to be even more simple um, because uh, I think the more customization, the more kind of, like, businessy type things you add to it, 
um, like features and things like that, the more it seems complicated and the more it seems like, you know, oh, just one more feature would, wouldn't kill it. Um, and that's how you end up with something that's clunky like Salesforce. Um, so I think that there's a lot of times I found that customers ask for things that are in not in their best interest, even more so not in their customers' best interests. Um, meaning that we are kind of like an interesting position where the people who pay us aren't necessarily the ones that I focus on the most. I focus more on the end users. Um, so to be a little less abstract, like let's say, you know, and they don't use us, but let's say like, you know, Facebook used us. So Facebook may be paying us and they may want certain things um, for like their developer.facebook.com. But I care a little more about the users of developer.facebook.com and making sure that they have a cohesive, uh, good experience. Um, so there's kind of like a back and forth with um, like trying to avoid adding features. And most of my job at this point is just saying no to different features. Um, some are just bad features and some are things that actually make a lot of sense, but it just overcomplicates things and all that. And uh, it's complicated. Like if we had too much like hierarchy and too much, uh, you know, being able to fork things and too much, uh, too many things and too many moving parts, I'm really afraid that README, which is the whole thing is, the whole goal is to make it simple so people actually do it. Uh, I'm really worried it'll become overwhelming. And even though people think they want these features and they probably do, um, it might cause them and other people to not want to use README because it just is so overcomplicated and hard to kind of uh, wrap your head around. So speaking of that simplicity, I heard a quote where you said, the first version of README is good at allowing you to write more documentation. The next version will allow you to write less documentation. Can yep. you explain that in more detail? Yeah. Uh, right now, we make it really easy to write kind of paragraphs of text um, because that's really, uh, with a few other examples, like with two exceptions, that's kind of what we do. Um, and I think that a lot of times people back themselves into the corner where they just keep writing more and more stuff. Um, and I'm of the belief, and this is not true across the board, um, but I think there's a lot of things that could be uh, kind of like a show rather than tell type thing. Um, and it'll never change README completely. Like you'll always be able to write these paragraphs of text. But think about authentication, for example. Um, two options. Either I could like write four or five paragraphs about authentication, like you know, the how the OAuth strategy works, all that stuff. Or uh, we could just kind of like generate Python, Rails, et cetera, code for you. And you can actually like look at the code and see how it works and like play around with it and you know, have your API key automatically in it and all that stuff. Um, so that's kind of where I want to go because no one likes reading paragraphs of text. Like, I don't know about you, but when I go to a documentation page, I scroll down for the codes. I like scroll for code samples, like read it. If it looks like it does what I want, I'll copy it. If not, I keep going. Um, and it's not that I copy and paste stuff and like don't read through it, but I understand code much better when I'm looking at code as opposed to reading text describing code. Um, so I kind of want to get way more into like showing rather than telling um, rather than like having paragraphs telling like all the different like things that could be returned, like just have three examples that show like, you know, what just what is returned, um, things like that. So I, I think there's, there's always a happy medium. Uh, there's always going to be lots of paragraphs of text, but I want to start building out UI that does a better job of um, explaining, uh, like to think of, to put it a slightly different way. Like if you look at a news article, um, a lot of times a graph that shows like the numbers is much more effective than two pairs of text that kind of walk you through it. Um, and I kind of want to kind of evoke that in README, which is anything that can be better be displayed by some sort of UI or some sort of graph or some sort of like button you can click or something you can tweak. I'd rather uh, do that than just kind of have paragraphs of text. Yeah, I love that approach. It's kind of like Twitter extrapolated to uh, the, the largest point, you know, use the fewest characters possible and, um, and I, th I think it's it's a real it's a real challenge and a real trick and it's admirable to to go up against it to to try to convince people to use less text. Yeah, I think uh, it's I think it's very. Uh, there's the um, uh, what's the I'm gonna mess up this quote, but it's a great quote. It's something like uh, I would have like I would have made this letter shorter, but I didn't care enough or something like that. <laughs> um, and it's it's like an old quote. It's like Lincoln or something like that. I, it probably was not Lincoln, but someone like Lincoln. And um, the whole point was like it's really easy to write a lot. Like if I want to send you an email, it'd be really easy for me to write like, you know, 10 paragraphs. That's easy. Whereas succinctly writing you one paragraph that gets most of the, you know, same value, that's hard. And I think that's true about documentation. I think people just start writing and they'll just start like adding stuff that they think of and all that. And it becomes very unwieldy. Um, 
and no one wants to read that. Like no one wants to, I have like gigantic O'Reilly books that I don't read because like they do everything. Um, and another thing too is like, it just seems very fascinating to me that if you were to go to, I don't know, the pick a random like developer site, random documentation, uh, as a seasoned developer, you're going to get the same documentation, the same experience as a junior person who just did dev bootcamp and is trying to figure out the API. Um, and let's say you've been using this API for six months. Like you're going to have a very specific question for the documentation and you're going to get the same exact experience each time. Um, I think that a lot of the like excessiveness of text is because you're trying to, trying to cover all use cases. You're trying to cover the very junior developer who doesn't know anything about rest, let alone your specific API. And you're also catering towards, you know, someone like you who's been using for six months, this specific API and like gets an error that they don't understand. Um, and I think it's time that documentation starts conforming to the, the user because it's the web. We know an O'Reilly book doesn't know who's reading it. Um, whereas, you know, the web, like I know, I know this is your 50th time that you've been on this documentation site. Why am I showing you like the introduction getting started page when you get there? Um, and like, we're far off from that. Like I can't even begin to like claim that we do anything around that right now, unfortunately. Um, but that's kind of where we're headed. I really want the documentation to be much better at understanding both the API or the code library and the end user and kind of building a much more tailored experience. Um, Very interesting. And that's where metadata, that's where like, you know, having less paragraphs of text, more metadata comes in. Because if you write 10 paragraphs of text, there's not much we can do about that. Um, but if you have like the kind of the more metadata, like we can start showing nice onboarding flows or we can show... Um, you know, various different things and kind of tailor the content to the perceived skill level of the person using it. So this show is part of a week of shows that we're doing about Y Combinator. Um, for those who don't know, Y Combinator is a startup accelerator that invests in the early stages of tech companies. So I'd like to talk a little bit about your experience in Y Combinator. When you first applied, what was the functionality of your product? Okay, so we launched, um, like I said, about a year. So um, currently, you can apply for YC now. Um, so we launched a year ago. So we launched about a year and a week ago. Um, we applied to YC about a month after we launched. Um, so we had a good amount of users when we applied, and we had even more when we had our interview, um, which was actually really helpful because uh, I had actually applied to YC three or four years prior to that with the same idea, but I had nothing built. I had absolutely no users because like, again, nothing built. And the conversation was very, very different. Um, the first time it was very like, I kept saying, I believe, or I think, or I'm pretty sure. Um, whereas like when you have users, it's so easy to be able to say, don't take my word for it. Like, you know, here's 50 users or a thousand users or whatever else. Um, so we definitely had a product. It was very similar to what it is right now. Um, and uh, we had a bunch of users. Um, not a ton of users, but at the time, it seemed like a lot. Um, and yeah, that's kind of the stage we were at at the time. So what was the response from the Y Combinator partners? Um, as far as that goes, it, they didn't really care about that. Like, no one, when you're doing the interview or the, um, the application, like, no one's there to do you any favors. Um, so it never really came up. Like they asked us, you know, how much money we're making. We said it and moved on. Um, with Y Combinator, they try to find your weaknesses because the interview is 10 minutes long and there's no time to kind of like, you know, congratulate or anything like that. So like, what were your weaknesses? Uh, weaknesses were uh, market size. Uh, developer tools, you know, there's just a smaller market um, than if I were to build, you know, something in healthcare or something like that. Um, I think it's a more attainable, addressable market, but it's still a much, much smaller market. I mean, like, what's the, what's the documentation market? A few million, like a few billion maybe, but like, if you look at healthcare, it's trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Um, so that was a huge issue. Um, well, I mean, developer market is really hard to assess. Like, oh, I agree. the future market, like, that's so hard to assess. Oh, and I, I, the point that I made was that I think that, uh, yes, maybe the market's a little small right now, but everyone around us is becoming tech literate. Not programmers, yeah. but tech literate. And there's going to come a point where they're going to want to be able to access their data. They're going to want to be able to mash stuff up. They're going to want to be able to, to do something, uh, whether it be a, you know, secretary who wants something or you know a programmer like everyone 
is going to come in contact with APIs. And with README, I want to make it, I'm building it as a consumer app. Um, it's definitely an enterprise app, but, uh, and that was kind of my answer, was that I think that, you know, there's going to be more and more people who don't have CS degrees that are going to want to access their data. I mean, APIs are really just an interface for getting and retrieving data, and everyone has, you know, uh, everyone needs to interact with data somehow at some point. Yeah, when I think about the size of the developer market, like I, I think about like what fraction of the world is developed um, mm -hmm. in in, ter in terms of like what what fraction of the world actually has people working as software engineers uh, at the at the size that it's going to eventually be in the future, and that answer is like very small. So if you extrapolate that population to the worldwide population that will be developed in the next twenty years, like it's going to be very large. So. Yeah. Oh, I 100. I mean, clearly, I agree. Um, yeah. And that's kind of what I said. And it's when they when YC asks questions, it's not because they think you're wrong necessarily. It's because they want to see how you do under pressure. Meaning that um, I mean, sometimes they think you're wrong and they ask a question because of that. But um, you know, they're not dumb. They know that you know Airbnb seemed like a really stupid small market when they showed up, and they know that you know, any market can become huge and it's so hard to predict. Uh, I think what they look for is less like, is your market big and more, if we accuse you of having a small market, like, do you get rattled? Do you like backtrack? Do you turn against your co-founder? Um, things like that. So I think the point of the 10 minute interview isn't to suss out whether or not your business is, you know, amazing because they have no clue. Uh, they're probably better than most at figuring that out, but you know, it's still very fickle. I think that they they ask questions like this, um, and I'm guessing, by the way, I have actually no clue, um, but I, I feel like they ask questions like that because they want to, like, kind of find the biggest weakness they can find and just see how you react to it. Mm, interesting. What was the most counterintuitive advice that you received at Y Combinator? Ooh, good question. Um, I don't, that's a good one. Um, I don't know, it's tough because their advice tends to, any other counterintuitive advice um, tends to have just kind of like become common knowledge at this point, um, at least kind of to me. Uh, I think one of the biggest things that, it's not really advice that's counterintuitive, but just realizing like how shitty startups are at that stage. Um, and like how they do, they have the whole like, you know, do things that don't scale quote. And like to kind of extrapolate that, like it's just, they know that like no one's going to walk out, most people aren't going to walk out of YC with like a gigantic business making a ton of money. Like the whole point is like, you know, it's going to take two years of just nothing going on and you just have to work hard <laughs> and all that. And like, it's not, it, that's obvious. And you know that I know that we all know that, but like just hearing that over and over again was really helpful because, um, yeah, it's it's like there is no overnight success. Um, yeah, so this is what this is what I've heard people mm -hmm. say is like the much of this like tribal knowledge or what used to be tribal knowledge has become totally institutionalized because you've got Paul Graham's essays, you got Sam Altman's yep. posts, Hacker News, all that stuff. But the thing is, what Y Combinator gets you is one, it gets you the network, which yep. we didn't really talk about, but it also gets you that immersion. Like you've got the whatever the tw uh, twelve weeks or whatever it is, and you're just totally immersed in yes. in in this like I guess kind of like a camp but not maybe not maybe boot camp's not the right word but it is the immersion that is mm -hmm. that is so important being immersed in those essays and those posts and how those manifest in real life yeah um it was like it was kind of funny like the first day um at yc like someone like they, they had a question that you can ask any questions and someone like raised their hand and asked a question about like you know um like when meeting like new customers or vcs or whatever like what's the best way to have them sign an nda and like everyone laughed because it's kind of like a, even though the rest of the world uses NDAs, like it's kind of like that YC, like, like, of course you don't have, like NDAs are bad. Patents are bad. Like there's kind of like that. Um, those, there's like unwritten rules that everyone knows that are kind of like in the YC community. When I say YC community, I don't mean in YC. I mean like that use hacker news or work for a YC company or work at a tech company. And like, it's not even YC exclusive. It's kind of like a tech thing. And uh, there's a lot of just, like, I kind of forget, like, how many rules there are that, like, are just unwritten that you don't think about um, that are very counterintuitive to the way the rest of the world works. 
Um, because if I, like I was talking to my brother and he's starting a business in New York and like he's has a lawyer and he's getting patents and he's, you know, we're all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't have a patent. I'll never <laughs> have a patent. And like, I, I have a lawyer because like I need one, but like, I don't, I don't like, it's, it's just, it's a very different world, like in, in Silicon Valley. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I think, uh, like, I think just like, a, like back to the counterintuitive advice, just things like, you know, just raise money. Um, and don't worry too much about like having the best investors and things like that. Like you always want the best investors, but the best investors that you can get as in don't spend all your time, like turning down bad investors because you want Andreessen and things like that. Like their whole thing is just kind of like, you know, Dropbox didn't roll out of demo day with, you know, $10 million from Andreessen. Um, maybe they did actually, I have no clue, but like most of the startups, like, did really badly in demo day. They did really badly at first. Um, Zenefits is a big one they always talk about. They just did really badly um, early on because no one thought they were going to be big. And it just—it was really nice to know that uh, everyone kind of starts out the same exact way with you know things just going really badly. You just have to work hard and, uh, so and keep going. Why do you why do you want to always raise money? Like because this is one of the this is one of the things that I don't completely understand sure. about about YC because it seems like. If you don't need like what if, what if you're like what if you're a successful company already and like let's say you're growing slowly and but you're you're profitable yeah uh, so why think, would you want to raise money why do you need to hyper grow yeah so it wasn't um it's not that YC says you have to raise money it's it was more of a if you're gonna raise money um then don't worry too much about it um, oh I see and like don't worry like about making sure that uh, e- even not the investors like one of the big things was like don't worry about your valuation like. The difference between a $6 million and an $8 million valuation may seem big to you right now, but like if it goes well, it's going to go well and it doesn't matter. If it goes badly, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, le- it was more like if you're going to, it was, the advice was more caveat, like if you're going to raise, um, don't worry too much about the terms, as long as no one's screwing you over, of course. Um, but like it's very easy for people to want to be like, well, we have a $10 million valuation. Um, Whereas like early on, like it's not a huge deal because you're raising so little money so early on that it's not a huge deal. Um, That being said, as far as what you just said, I agree. Like I went through a huge struggle, which was, do I actually want to raise money? Um, Because when you raise money, like you kind of started that process of raising money um, and you're kind of stuck raising money forever. Um, And And promising speedy growth. Precisely. Because no one invests, no one wants to invest in a lifestyle business. Um, Yeah. And that makes total sense. Why would you want to do that? Um, but counter argument as a founder, a lot of times the best thing you can do is not like, I think one of the things that kills companies the most is striving for that growth. Um, when you don't have the company that can, that can pull it off as in, there's a lot of really great lifestyle businesses, a lot of really great companies that have made the founders, you know, 200,000, 300,000, $400,000 a year. Um, like in, like in salary, Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, they try to turn it into a, 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 a hyper growth, raise money business and it just kills it because, you know, making $200,000 a year is a ton for like a single developer, but it's not great for a, you know, large company. And you have to be able to like, you know, a lot of people try to extend the company beyond where it should be. And who knows, maybe I'm doing that too. Maybe I would have, we'll see in a few years. Like maybe I had a really great niche product that could make me a ton of money. Um, and maybe I'll kill it by trying to, you know, actually like go further and build a bigger company. Um, so yeah, I don't think raising money is for everyone. Um, I think I wouldn't recommend anyone do YC unless they're sure they wanted to raise money. Hmm. Um, and by the time like we did YC, like I was sure that I wanted to like, I was really excited about the idea. Um, I had a lot of things that I couldn't do as like a lifestyle business. Um, but I, yeah, raising money is not for every company. Um, and it, it does kind of suck that, uh, are you in Silicon Valley? I'm actually not sure. Huh? I'm in Seattle. Okay. So same thing, but like in Silicon Valley, like it's kind of like, there is this bad mentality of if you haven't raised money, you're not a real company. Um, Right. It's more of like a, oh, it's a cute side project. Yes. And you can be like, no, I make like way more money than you do. Like it's going really well. (laughs) And they're like, that's cute. Uh, What's your valuation? And you'll be like, I don't have a valuation. Like (laughs) I can tell you how much money I make. Um, And it's, it is unfortunate because. uh, It's perverse. Yeah. Like it's, it's, I think there's a lot of great things. Like I'm feel so lucky that people have given me money to build what I want to build. And like, I'm so, I just, I can't believe there's no place else on the planet where like, you know, someone would give someone of, you know, my age experience, like just as much money as I have to just build stuff. 
Um, but at the same time, I don't think raising money should be the goal. And I don't think raising money should be the seen as like the only path to building a real company. Yeah. Okay. So I want to begin to close off. I've got some like more general questions. Okay. Um, so what are the ideas that you tinkered on before starting README? Oh God. So I had, I told you that I applied to YC, um, did not get in. And that kind of discouraged me a little bit. And I was like, okay, I need to find like a bigger idea. Um, because dev tools are tough. Like, you know, no matter how big developer stuff gets, it's, you're never gonna be able to build a dev tool company that's as big as Uber, as big as Airbnb, as big as Dropbox. Um, maybe not, maybe you can make one that makes more money, but definitely not like in Mindshare and Ubiquity and all that. Um, so like I, for a while I worked on uh, a construction management app. Um, I worked on uh, a travel thing where like it was a traveling incubator called Phileas and Fog. I worked on a social media app that was like making plans with friends. Um, I worked on like so many different things. Uh, I, I should make a list of like all the things that I like tried to do over the two years. Um, and like at the end of the day, like I just lost interest after like three, six months, whatever it was. Some things were like, I'm going to do this. And like it lasted a week and I grew bored of it. Other things lasted, you know, six months and I got bored of it. Um, and for me, I think the thing that I realized was that uh, I was looking for the best idea I could come up with. But what I should have been looking for was the best idea for me. As in, uh, there's a lot of better ideas out there than, than you know, what I'm building. Uh, there just are. But I couldn't find an idea that was better for me, that I was more excited about, that I thought that I could execute on better than this. And I think that, um, like, people talk about, like... The founder market fit thing. Exactly. Like, I think founder market fit is so important to companies. Um, like, let's say you came to me and said, Greg, I've got this idea for a company. You're going to call it Zenefits. And if you get, you told me like the entire idea, like I would be like, yeah, that's it. Like I get that idea. And I would probably, there's probably a time where I would have, I would have started working on it because like I was just looking for that idea, but I never could have grown benefits into what it is now because it just wasn't like a good fit for me. And I don't know, like maybe it's because I didn't care about HR stuff. Maybe I didn't care. Like it just didn't like, I, I always see like right now, the point where I'm at now is, um, it's kind of like if you watch a basketball game, like no one's stopping and thinking about, you know, oh, should I shoot? Should I pass? Like, it's very instinctive. And uh, I think for, like, what I'm doing right now, just because I've been working on it so long and because, like, I am a developer, I am a designer, like, I'm trying to bring those two together, like, I can rely on my instincts a lot. And if I was doing something in, like, the healthcare space, I'd have to stop and, like, talk to users oh, or yeah. think about things. And, like, that just compounds. Like, the number of decisions you have to make every second is insane um so i think it's really important to find something that you know you you're it's there's always going to be things you have, to, you know, have to stop and think about and figure out but if you can like push as much of that off to instinct as possible i think that's really important yeah, it is hard to find that flow state that's yeah. that's what you're describing oh exactly um where like it's just yeah and i we'll see i'm not like readme is not successful yet in the grand scheme of things like things are going well um so we'll see how things actually turn out but like Right now, I just feel like um, it's just a really great fit between the company and myself. Um, and like, there's other companies that I've seen that like it just it's not as natural as a fit. And it's a lot harder to build a company if you're not just, if you're not just in tune with exactly where it's going. Yeah. So I listened to a podcast where you mentioned that you almost dropped out of college. Why are you glad that you didn't drop out of college? Uh, that's a personal, uh, when I say personal, I don't mean like I won't talk about it, but like it's a personal, <laughs> uh, a personal thing. I'm not saying that, uh, college is right for everyone. Uh, it was more of a personal thing for me. Uh, the reason why I was glad was because the startup that I was working at failed. Um, I realized that like, I loved it, but like, I realized that it was like, I was very like in a bubble there, um, at the startup. And, uh, I just really liked the last few years of college, um, I think that you can only be a kid once and by be a kid, I mean, you know, half of that is like, you know, doing the cliche college stuff, but half of it is not having any responsibilities, just being able to sit around and mess around with friends on like, uh, on a new project or something like that, like having no responsibilities, um, and just being around like-minded people. And I think that's so incredibly important and you can never really have that again. College is kind of the only place, like college classes are a waste of time. Um, but like the college, like, uh, Summer atmosphere camp. exactly is just so important um and it's uh i'm so glad i went back because i don't think i would have like i think i would have like 
lost out on a lot of, you know, maturing and trying new things and learning um, if I started working at a company that early on. Okay, interesting. So I want to close off by talking about uh, a quote that I read on one of your blog posts. You said... You researched me well. I, <laughs> <laughs> I Yeah, I'm a professional podcaster. Um, so, so I want to... Uh, th- there was this quote, you, you were working at Mozilla yep. uh, five years ago, and, and you said, uh, well, you were asked, where do you want to be in five years? Yep. Um, and you answered a certain way, but I want to ask you the same question now. Where do you want to be in five years? Good question. Um, I think that, well, so f- uh, the blog post you're referring to is called uh, like five years time. And the whole thing was a story that, um, you know, Five years ago, I described ReadMe and kind of said that's where I wanted to go with it. And like, it just so turned out that like five years later, you know, that's what I was doing. And that being said, like, it's a good story, but like, I'm sure there's been 50 or 100 things that I've said. I'm going to be doing this in five years. And like, <laughs> it didn't pan out. Um, so like, it's not like I like five, and I think you know this, of course, but it's not like five years ago, I like, you know, said, this is where I'll be. It wasn't like a Babe Ruth-esque, like I pointed at the stands and was like, you know, there. Um, that being said, I don't know. I don't have any like specific things. Um, I just think that I want uh, in five years, I think that I want to do a better job of um, increasing. I want to focus more on personal stuff as opposed to company stuff. Um, The reason being that I think it's very, uh, I spent a lot of my twenties like just working and like blowing off friends because I had to work on readme or I had to work on whatever else. Um, And I think that, uh, not that I'm not happy, but, um, you know, I, I'm very happy, but I, I think over the next five years, like the thing that I'm going to consider success will be, um, spending more time traveling, spending more time, uh, you know, with friends, spending more time doing things like that. That's a very big answer. I realize that, but, uh, I don't want to be like, the thing is I don't want to be like 40 and still be, um, you know, working nonstop and like obsessing over like building companies and stuff like that. I still want to be building a company, of course. Uh, I can't imagine myself ever not wanting to be to be doing that. Um, but I want to make sure that I don't lose sight of, uh, you know, kind of what's important and stuff like that. Um, so I think that my current weakness is definitely uh, more on like a personal level. And I definitely want to spend more time kind of uh, doing, be more cognizant of that. Very interesting. Well, Greg Koberger, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been really good talking to you. Awesome. It was great talking to you as well. Thank you.